Hi, I'm Aditi, and this is Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation in pizza and robots. And if cows can make milk. Welcome to our very first show. Is this actually our first one? I feel like we've been doing this for years. We have been, but uh, it's the first one that people will hear other than the three of us. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, although I'm not sure how many people actually want to hear me, but they're probably here for you too. Uh, I don't know about that. Well, our friends and family, hopefully. Well, this is an exciting moment for us, Brett. I'm a journalist. You're an investor and entrepreneur. And somehow we've managed to weave food into both of our careers. Yeah, the food space is cool. It touches everybody, right? I love eating. You don't want to know me if uh, if I'm hangry. That's the worst time of the day to talk to me. I've heard that you get hangry also, Aditi. Yeah, not only do I get hangry, but no one wants to see me that way. It can be pretty rough. Well, we're going to be talking about all things food and innovation. And that's a lot of stuff there. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, that's where the name came from, Full Stack Food. It's a really, really cool time to be talking about innovation in the food space, from the sustainability portions of it to the impact that COVID's had on the food supply chain to just all the innovation, labor shortages, robotics, alternative proteins. There's so many cool things happening in the food space right now that impact everybody. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We also want to introduce Stephanie Rich, who works with you. And Stephanie, we're excited to have you on the show as well to pop in from time to time. Hey, team. Really excited to be here. And it has me thinking, first and foremost, what is everyone's favorite food? Pizza. I don't know if I can pick just one. I mean, I like all kinds of food, except a controversial take here. I hate brunch. Brunch is oh, a... Love brunch. Love brunch. brunch. Every, yeah, it's, here's why brunch is bad. Brunch, you only get three meals in a day. And if you eat brunch, you combine two of them into one. And that means I get one less chance a day to eat. And I enjoy eating I usually combine like all three into one for brunch and then I'm full for the rest of the day. It's so good. And mimosas? I like mealtime too much. Well, that debate is definitely to be continued. But in the meantime, every single week, we're going to be exploring a question having to do with our guests. So this week's question is, guys, do you need a cow to make milk? Well, our guests today, Ryan Pandya and Paramal Gandhi, not only say you can make animal-free dairy, but they've done it at scale. They're the co-founders of a company called Perfect Day that uses flora and fermentation to make milk proteins, and they are so successful, Bob Iger is on their board. That's crazy impressive. Do you need a cow to make milk? What do you guys think? And we're not talking almond milk or oat milk or anything. We're talking milk milk like the creamy stuff. Well, evidently, no. Well, it's going to be really interesting to hear from them. But first, let's take a look at some hot topics trending in food and innovation recently. First up, ghost kitchens have become more and more popular. And recently, All Day Kitchens announced a $65 million raise led by Lightspeed. And another ghost kitchen startup, Kitchen United, acquired Zool, which provides technology underpinning these distributed kitchens. Now, Brett, I've been reading so much about, it seems like every single day there's some sort of new deal with a ghost kitchen. Can you explain what these kitchens are and why they're so popular? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest costs in the food space, especially the consumer food space, it has to be made in a professional kitchen. And there's a tremendous amount of capital investment that you have to do to build out that kitchen, to get it ready, to get it approved, to be able to cook anything for the consumption by people that aren't your family. And so the idea is just like co-working space blew up a few years ago with WeWork, that there was an opportunity to build spaces out that were specifically built for food entrepreneurs but you don't have to have that whole capital expenditure up front. And so that's the concept and why the commercial kitchen space really gained some popularity recently because it removes the CapEx portion of being able to be a food entrepreneur. And there's so many people in this world that have ideas for a great food product. There's everybody that thinks they have the best homemade recipe for cookies or best recipe for granola bar or the new meal delivery idea. And it's really expensive to get those off the ground if you start by having to build out a commercial kitchen. It'll be interesting to see how this space progresses. Moving on, Do Good Foods, which, as it sounds, aims to reduce grocery store food waste, has secured a nearly $170 million investment from asset management firm Naveen. Do Good is based in Pennsylvania, and it takes unsold fruits, veggies, and meats at grocery stores that are about to expire and then converts them into nutrient-rich animal feed. Brett, food waste is an area we're hearing so much about. It's a worthy cause, but what's your take on whether these startups can ultimately become profitable? It is a hard space. And one of the reasons it's hard is you have to move a heavy item. And so the logistics, those are almost like a logistics company. You can feed a lot of things to animals and, and in, it's about the protein levels in that animal feed. The other issue that you have for animal feed companies where you're upcycling or taking food waste and changing it into animal feed is you need real consistent blends. And so if you're taking food waste from a grocer, it's actually something that's really difficult is getting that consistency of blend of this much protein, this much carbohydrate, this much this. And so having real consistency in animal feeds is really interesting. In this space is, is a hard challenge for them to overcome to be successful. The You've also seen the we're going to man, help manage your inventory for you play in the startup space in this world where, you know, grocery store, we know all of your inventory levels. We know when things are going to expire. And so we can help you with a marketplace to sell shortly expiring food or we can help discount it and drive foot traffic to your store. I could see how it'd be a real benefit for a grocery store as well. Finally, Insider is reporting that Amazon is working on a smart fridge that will tell you when certain foods will expire, speaking of, and even automatically replenish those items through who else? Amazon. Brett and Steph, I mean, Alexa's already listening to everything I'm saying right now. Um, is this convenience or just plain creepy? I think it's interesting because we've seen Samsung and LG, for example, play in this smart refrigerator space for a couple of years. And so Amazon isn't necessarily the, the first mover here, but what's so compelling and, you know, at some stages frightening is the integration that they can have with Alexa, with delivery, with grocery stores and Whole Foods and all of that. That whole vertical integration is a, a bit insane, but it's really convenient. I mean, it's getting end to end to the point where they're going to predict when we're hungry. I mean, it's just too much. Can we get them to automatically throw my expired food out for me or from my, you know, some of my friends' refrigerators or parents' refrigerators where they have stuff that's like 20 years old in there that they're saving still for some reason, just throw it away. And take out the trash while you're at it. <laughs> The space itself, it is a interesting space. There's a lot of startups that have also tried to come into this world. 
the real challenge here is actually a data and inventory challenge, similar to you know the grocery store um, example we just talked about is understanding what's in that fridge. How do you do that and really understand it? And I don't think humans are going to input that data. And so it's like it's a bit of a chicken or an egg problem here where Amazon's going to have to own the entire fridge first to get the data to then be able to tell you when it's expiring or they're going to have to get computer vision working so well that it can actually understand what's in a fridge. But that seems like a long way off in a very undefined environment, which is a fridge that everybody's is slightly different. That's going to be a really hard technical challenge to solve. Coming up, we'll introduce you to a couple of guys who had such a tough time with vegan diets. They decided it would be easier to just replicate dairy without the cow. A bagel with cream cheese may not seem like a catalyst to change the world, but that's exactly what it was for Ryan Pandya and Paramal Gandhi. The two men are the co-founders of Perfect Day. It's a company that makes the proteins you find in milk in a lab using a method called fermentation. You'll hear during the interview exactly how fermentation works, but it's one of the hottest sectors in food and innovation. And of all the companies in the space, Perfect Day is the most highly funded. It's raised $750 million, valued at a reported $1.5 billion. In fact, the company is so successful, former Dizzy chief Bob Iger is even on the board. The two co-founders grew up a world apart, Ryan in Connecticut and Paramal in Mumbai. But as young adults, they landed in the same place geographically and professionally. Both Ryan and Paramal studied bioengineering at U.S. colleges and found themselves gravitating toward the same scientific problem. Is it possible to make a nearly identical replacement for dairy without the cow? For the two founders, the answer is a resounding yes. Good news, considering the one struggle that brought them together. We both had gone from eating all kinds of food growing up, meat and dairy and eggs, to going vegetarian around you know, college. And then both of us had tried to go vegan and had a much, much harder time with the second transition, right? Because no longer do you have even things like dairy and eggs that, that most people are uh, replacing when they go vegetarian. Now, the best thing you get for something like cheese is tofu, right? And Paramal, it sounds like you are a vegan too, that it was not just a scientific problem, but also a personal problem with just finding good replacements for dairy. Pretty much. That's where the original idea came from, where I came to the U.S. in 2013 for my master's, originally focused on meat work. That was the dream. Let's make meat without the animal. And then I tried going vegan, just like Ryan. I lasted about six months and just hated my life for those six months and figured out that it's a lot harder to go vegan than it is to go vegetarian. And it all came to a head one day when, Ryan, you had a hankering for something specific. I was just craving a bagel. I'm truly a, a Northeast boy through and through. And this particular morning in early 2014, I was a couple years into my begrudging vegan experience. Like I, I had done it for years at the time. It wasn't like I was new to it, but it never stopped being a struggle for me. The cravings, right, for things like cream cheese, which I, I just love. And so one day I, I went on Happy Cow and looked for where is a, a place in South Boston that has uh, vegan cream cheese for their bagels. There was one place. It was a 35-minute drive away. I took what in hindsight was a little bit egregious of a lunch break and drove out to, the, to there and got this bagel with cream cheese that was vegan and paid extra for it, by the way, right? And it was just such a disappointing experience. Like, 
here is some like gloopy white grayish honestly thing that is like drippy and and melty in all the wrong ways and just you know tasted and and felt like cardboard and and i was imagining like as this thing is like dripping on my leg i'm like what is not in this that is stopping it from being cream cheese why am i so disappointed in this and how with all the money and you know all the all the consumer demand and everything going towards plant based how is this the best the world can do right now right and started thinking about it like a scientist like what is physically missing from this cream cheese that is somehow in dairy cream cheese and was noodling on it i i got back to the lab to my work and was and and you know i i was a very good and and uh, prudent employee but rather than get immediately back to work i opened up wikipedia and was like what is in milk right like you can really google things like that at this point i'm like what what is an udder how does this all work and why is dairy so much more functional and nutritious than plant-based dairy and it doesn't take a whole lot of reading to realize that the protein in milk is bringing such a huge amount of that functionality and and versatility which which was a light bulb moment for me as a struggling vegan because part of that struggle is that there is milk ingredients in like everything right you go to every aisle of the grocery store you might find dairy you have to check the ingredients of every package and you'll see whey protein because this is the protein from milk that is lending all that functionality and in, in many cases nutrition that is now what what paramal and i have set off to to make and what what we've now succeeded in making and just ask the question like Ryan what is so magical about milk why is it that it can do so many different things and when you ask that question and you google a little bit you realize it's the protein that's what gives milk its magic and its essence and uh, th then the two of us met and as he mentioned we finally cracked it after 7 years we can make milk protein without the cow now you cracked the code but it took 7 years we're saying 7 years because our goalposts are such that we only consider it having been accomplished now that we can make it in the you know hundreds of metric tons at full scale right and at low cost we've been able to make it for several years now but it's one thing to prove something in in a tiny you know micro little level but now we can actually do it as a supply chain you know as part of the the global food supply chain which is the real impact and the real goal here the first day that you guys met in person was at an accelerator in Ireland how did that happen how come you didn't meet before then I can confirm that one of my biggest fears going in was what if this guy turns out to be an axe murderer? I'm literally flying to Ireland, which is where the accelerator was taking place, and we were both introduced by email by a mutual friend named Isha. She runs a nonprofit called New Harvest, and we both were volunteers there. They were entirely focused on meat work as well, and the two of us were the only ones that reached out to her asking, "Hey, is anyone working on milk? It seems a whole lot simpler." and we weren't looking at that point to start a company we were like there's got to be someone working on this can we just join them and help them in that journey and she responded saying nope there's literally nobody i know that's even thought about this idea other than this 23 year old indian american background in science dude in my case from boston you guys should know each other and maybe start a company together so we sort of just jumped in it was uh i what was the exact date Ryan? do you remember april, april 15th april 15th and, and your anniversary. <laughs> 2014 online dating was around. <laughs> we had five days to apply. Uh, the deadline was April 20th. We put together some sort of proposal and applied, got in. Ryan quit his job the next day, I believe, after getting it and moved to Ireland for three months to start the that was company. a long time coming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's pretty, that's a bold move, though. Well, you know, it helps that we had so little to lose, right? I was 22, Paramount was 23. 
it was my first job out of college and Paramal was still in, in the master's program. So we were like, I mean, compared to now at 30, like there's so much more involved in, in jumping ship from your career and doing something completely new. We were lucky to, to not really have any of those tethers at the time. And here was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, right? Where someone's saying, hey, do you want $30,000 to, to chase a dream that could actually be something and no one else in the world is going to do if you don't? Like, it was like a, a pretty clear decision. A whole 30000 <laughs> A whole 30000 I mean, I still remember the day when it got dumped into Ryan's personal account. Uh, he texted me saying, hey, we have $30,000. I'm buying beers for everybody in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> and so you go through the accelerator and then what do you do next? Well, midway through the, the summer, so Paramount got there, what, May 15th, 16th? And by, by June, I think it was like early June, we had already received some inquiries from investors that wanted to talk to us. We ended up getting the opportunity to not only do a little bit of press here and there, but specifically to write a story in New Scientist. And that article was then read by... Selena Chow, who runs Horizons Ventures out of Hong Kong. And Horizons, as, as you might know, had done a lot of the early investing in this kind of space. Like they had supported the first uh, cultured meat company, Celebius Meat Company, Modern Meadow. They were looking at milk in particular. So in June, they reached out three different ways before it got through our, our spam d- detector, unfortunately. But the third time we saw the message. Wow. It went to like the other conversations part of Facebook. It went to like the LinkedIn pile that no one checks, you know. There was even a comment on our website. Yeah, like a comment on the blog or something. Like weirdly, that's the one we saw. I don't even know. So we're like, oh my God, your Horizons Ventures. Yes, of course we'll talk to you. Right. So we we had a we had a Zoom scheduled for for the following week, sometime in mid-June. You know, we did everything we could to prepare. We like put on white lab coats and like we're like we're let's look as legitimate as we can. Which Selena totally called us out on, which was hilarious. She's like, yeah, you didn't have to put <laughs> on right, lab coats. <laughs> put on lab coats for a, a pitch. That's that's great. Totally, totally. You know, and we had no idea, right? We we had like all these papers of notes in front of us, so we could like spout off statistics. You know, whatever. Uh, all of it, all of it, at least got us to the point where we were invited to go and present to them in Hong Kong. So all of a sudden, these 22, 23-year-old brown dudes are flying through Heathrow with like little lab vials of milk. It's like, what is more alarming than that? We definitely don't have kids yet. It's definitely not milk for commercial sale. TSA did not know what to do with it. <laughs> but we got there. And you got funded by Horizons, and right? And we got funded by Horizons, which which was phenomenal. I mean, obviously, that took until October. But by then, we we kind of knew that they were at least engaged enough, you know, we were we were having a sort of good faith uh, conversation about what it would look like and all of that, and knew that we wanted to come to the Bay Area in California for a couple of reasons. We knew that there's a lot of biotech talent on the East Coast, but it's really more medical and pharma, uh, certainly at the time, whereas all the like ESG, as, as I guess we would call it now, but the the biofuels and, and sustainable materials and all of those sorts of things seem to be out here uh, on the West Coast. That was one. We, we figured that our initial demographic of, of consumers that want something kinder and greener and are maybe open to technology, getting humanity there, might be out here. And, you know, it's California. The weather's nice. We wanted to live out here. And we had the option. Can you explain to us in the simplest way possible how you develop these proteins? It's casein and whey, right? We're kind of looking at it as not just a whey and casein story at this point, but but those are certainly where where the dairy story begins and, and what we've been focusing on for the last few years. Essentially, it's a lot simpler. Well, it's simple, but not easy, maybe. 
where we're all familiar with like genetic code. Right now in the 21st century, we, we kind of like to view bodies as some sort of analogy of, of computers. So if you imagine DNA as code, it's encoding proteins directly. What we do really, really well understand is how that code turns into a single protein. That is the core thing that biological engineering does and what uh, what Perfect Day can harness to a level that that really folks hadn't done before. Because typically you would use fermentation, I mean, for the last 50 years, right? You'd use fermentation to make an ingredient, maybe a protein even, like an enzyme, that you're using in very, very, very tiny amounts, right? That is how the food industry has viewed fermentation for 50 years, right? You make a, make a tiny little thing that you sprinkle in. We came along and said, what happens if we try to make a bulk, large volume protein at a low cost? Can you still do it? And there's no reason you can't with the maturity that the industry has gotten to and, and where we've been able to take it with some of our partners. What's changed? I'm curious, like, what's changed in the technology? Because like you said, like fermentation has been around for a long time and a part of like the food manufacturing process. Um, and, you know, like big food manufacturers have been using fermentation. Like what's changed in the technology from 50 years ago to today that's allowed you to do it more at scale and, and still be cost competitive? My short answer is that I think time has passed and a lot of learnings have, have come about from past generations of this industry biofuels and, and the pivots to synthetic specialty chemicals and things like that. And one of the things we try to do here is learn from those things and go by sort of our own playbook based on the best learnings of what, what the industry has come up with at the time. That's a big part of our success. And the other is just we're standing on the shoulders of giants where rather than reinvent the wheel, we sort of figured out that if we were to start today, it's going to take too long for us to do it by ourselves. Let's find out folks that have been working on this in academia or in other organizations for like 10, 20, 30 years, and we sort of just partnered with them. So we had a head start that no one else did. And the, the other piece is cost has come down. Like the cost of sequencing, the cost of genetics, writing it, reading it, has dropped down so much that it's finally commercially viable to even try something like this. Can you dig a bit more into like what is fermentation and you know how does that even work? Yeah, well, if you think of beer, you're like 90% of the way there in terms of what to picture, right? You've got simple plant carbohydrates being put into a stainless steel tank and eaten by microflora. In the case of beer, it's yeast, right? Or wine, it's yeast. In our case, we're using fungi. But the core concept is the same. They're eating those simple plant carbohydrates and they're using their internal biology to create, to turn that into protein that they actually make themselves. And it's a little bit abstract, but if we can kind of wrap our heads around somehow a cow is eating grass and protein comes out the other end, milk somehow results because magic biology happens. The same kind of thing is happening. And in fact, the same biology that cows are using to convert plant inputs into milk protein outputs, that biology is preserved. That's the same thing. But you don't need a 2,000 pound mammal to do it. You just need, I mean, if you think about it, right, there's all that animal just kind of involved for the, for the maintenance and, and upkeep of those small number of cells that are doing the actual milk production. Instead of a full cow, it's just the cells that are making milk protein. And instead of the whole milk complexity with the hormones and all the stuff, the cholesterol, the lactose that's in it, it's just the protein that we know brings a core of the benefit for milk. So the fungi is the replacement for the big mammal in terms of being the conduit, right? In very layman's terms. Exactly. And I'm just curious as to, you could have taken those and said, okay, we're going to start making X product, you know, Y product, whatever. But instead, you chose to go a direction of offering these proteins to other types of like CPG companies. Why did you go that direction? 
I think we we thought we were going to. Like we had every intention of of doing what it seemed every other company did at the time, which is like develop this technology and then go out there with your one brand. I think two things happened. One is that we pretty quickly started getting inquiries. As soon as we we talked about this in any kind of public PR context, the emails started coming in from food companies saying, well, hold on, I want to do that. I want to work with that kind of protein. Can you just sell me the protein? And I think more importantly, we we hired a head of strategy from the dairy industry who works, you know, worked with dairy proteins as as an ingredient. And again, the sort of light bulb moment, as someone who had tried to be vegan, it, it shouldn't have been surprising that whey protein is everywhere. So the industry already views whey as not only an ingredient, but the gold standard ingredient. So being able to make it in a way that is now animal free and in line with, with where we all know consumers are going is just massively interesting for, for everyone across the industry. And you don't have to teach anyone how to use it because it's whey protein. They all know how to use it. You don't have to teach anyone why they should care because both the consumer sentiment and the value of the protein is already clear to most food companies. The only other piece was at that point in time, what got us to start this company at the end of the day is the impact that we could potentially have. And if we're just one single brand on the grocery store shelf, no one else is utilizing this ingredient. I have tasted your ice cream or the ice cream rather made with your ingredients. And I can tell you as an ice cream connoisseur that it is practically, I mean, the same. But if I am a vegan, can I still eat the ice cream with perfect day ingredients and call myself vegan? Yes, provided you're not using vegan as a proxy for free of milk allergen, which it turns out some people do. At some point, Bob Iger joined your board. That must have been a huge seminal moment. How did you meet him in the first place? We're lucky to have uh, a network of really supportive investors who are themselves extremely well connected. So I think probably kind of simultaneously through Horizons and Tomasek, you know, phone calls were scheduled with Bob just to meet him. I don't think anyone had any intention that that I would run my mouth and ask him to join our board. Um, and I don't remember doing that either, but Paramal assures nope, me that. I, I do, I do. This was our first ever call. We're like, okay, we're just going to introduce ourselves. He's still part of Disney. Maybe after he retires at the end of 21, 22, we might ask him to do something. And about 45 minutes into that conversation, he was like asking, hey, how can I help? You know, uh, how can I be involved? And I still remember this. Ryan goes, oh, um, we actually have one seat available on the board of directors. Would you join? And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God. <laughs> And uh, to a certain extent, so did Bob, because his response to that was, well, I only have sat on two boards my entire career in life. One is Disney. The other is uh, Apple, because Chief Jobs personally asked me to join the board. Let me think about it. And we're like, OK, he didn't shoot this crazy idea down. That's one of the lessons I've learned from this guy is you just have to ask. <laughs> Talk about being audacious. Totally. And, you know, from there, obviously, there was a lot more diligence he wanted to do. We walked through our deck. We, we essentially went through the data room with him. And he had, had some more calls with, uh, with some of our investors just to make sure they could vouch for our personality and, and integrity, which it would appear they did because he joined. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice that he's ever given you? I think the best piece of advice is more inherent in him joining the board, where, to your point, being audacious and just asking Punching above your weight is very important. Are you guys trying to take down Dippin' Dots as the ice cream of the future? Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> I think the decline of malls in America took down Dippin' Dots. <laughs> <laughs> but if Baskin Robbins or Kraft Heinz came to you, and they probably have actually at this point, and say, we want to work with you, are you guys are capable of 
having that kind of scale right now? Yes, that's honestly what we've been focused on for the last few years. There was a moment in 2019 which woke the two of us up to the kind of scale we needed to achieve to start having impact. And it's a fun story. I might as well share it. We were doing goal setting for the year and we said, oh, we're going to make 10 metric tons of our protein. That's 10,000 kilograms for that entire year. And everybody thought we were crazy. The team said, no, the goal should be one metric ton. 10,000 is too much. You, you've made like one kilogram of protein until that point in time. We convince everybody, we're all happy. So 10 metric tons is 10,000 kilograms. And when we tell this data point to our head of strategy, he just gets up, goes to the whiteboard, takes a marker, draws a literal truck, shades half of that truck, and says, your 10 metric tons is half a single truckload one single time. Drops the marker and leaves the room and just <laughs> destroyed our bubble. And <laughs> since then, we've been thinking in terms of truckloads and barge loads, and that's the scale of the industry. There are some entire markets that we just can't even can't even do trials because the trials would be 500 tons. Wow. So what's next for you? We see products, we see ice cream with your ingredients in them. What are you hoping to tackle next? The most immediate next thing you'll see is cream cheese. We have that ready to go. It's an amazing, amazing product. And we have a couple different folks that'll be commercializing it uh, as early as later this year. I'm curious, like what's been the hardest part about scaling? Um, is it the capital required to do fermentation? What, I mean, why is it so hard to scale this business? In short, it is the CapEx and it's the time associated with projects. Those are the big ones. That and just the mindset required where each run at that kind of scale is very, very expensive. When you're trying to decide what type of protein to make next, what goes into that decision? Are you thinking about the scale and the impact part, financial considerations? What are some of the things you guys are thinking about? Yeah, you hit it on the nail there. The, the big one is the impact. That's what drives us here, where we don't want to do something just for because it's cooler, it makes money. It needs to actually make the world a better place, a kinder place, a greener place. That's one of the big decision points. The other one is, of course, is there a need for it? We don't want to make something and then go out there and find that nobody actually wants it. Let's actually solve problems that people have. And that way, the product market fit exists up front. All right, gentlemen. Time for lightning round. Favorite flavor of ice cream, chocolate or vanilla? Vanilla. Chocolate. Ooh, already disagreement on the panel. Things are getting ugly here. Within 15 years, less than 50% of dairy will be produced by cows. Wait, within 15, one five years, less than 50% of dairy will be made by cows? One five. 100%. Yeah, I think so. You all are both vegan and we talked about that. Would you eat some chicken made by Upside Foods? We would, but I don't think either of us would, would say we're vegan at this point. If, if we thought it was an easy enough lifestyle, we wouldn't, wouldn't have done this. Got it. Wow, man, that ruined that question. <laughs> I really blew that one. All right, I got one more for you. Hopefully I don't mess this one up like I did the other one. What was a more exciting moment? Your first $30,000 investment or your last $160 million investment? The first 30000 Yeah, the first thirty. Oh, come on, Brett. That makes us sound like assholes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great question. That's a great question. A Both one. of those are big moments. <laughs> hey, it's true though, right? I mean, it, it's it's the delta from where you were a minute ago, right? Yeah, the 160 just comes with more deliverables and the more the reality of we actually need to go out there and perform. <laughs> Do you all miss being in the lab? I don't really. Lab, no. But the early days, sometimes. I do have one more. This is a really important one. All right. And you have to, this one you probably should an try and answer at the same time. We'll see, though. Which one of you two is the smart one? Ryan. Oh, I was going to say Paramount. Ah, good answer. Um, now that's actually all I have. 
Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Every week on Full Stack Food, we're going to invite a few startups onto the podcast to tell us what kind of problem they're solving, how they're solving it, and how they're going to take over the world. Today, I'm here with Andy, the CEO, co-founder of Science On Call. Andy, what problem are you guys solving at Science? Restaurants have an increasingly complex tech stack. They don't know how to deal with it, but they're entirely reliant on it. We make that easy for them by managing their tech stack. So restaurants are adopting a bunch more technology and they have no idea what to do. Correct. And the old ways of doing this was really expensive, really inefficient. We developed a subscription-based product so they have access to us 24 hours a day. So how are you solving the problem? Is it just with people? We started behaving as a help desk for restaurants, but what we found is every time we resolve a problem for them, we can document that resolution, make it portable and easy for any of our agents to use. And we're in the process of automating a lot of these resolutions. So we're able to scale more quickly and support more restaurants, which is why we do this. How is this a huge company? Well, it's not just restaurants out there that need this help. There's a million retailers that need help as well that don't have effective IT support. They don't have a strategy that helps them. So we can scale across industries pretty quickly. But in addition to that, we don't just have to do tech support for restaurants. We can do the same thing for retail. We can do the same thing for franchisees of any business that don't have their own internal IT departments. Today, I'm here with Ron, CEO, co-founder of Caddy. Ron, what problem are you solving? So 99% of food companies have between 10 to 500 employees. And you know they're powered by multi-generational families. And this untapped market is now undergoing a generational shift and is hungry to adopt technology. And this segment is all but ignored when it comes to existing traceability solutions. And so you may or may not have heard that the FDA is now mandating sweeping requirements for stricter traceability, and it's the ignored who are not prepared. What types of companies are you talking about? So these could be you know, uh, commercial bakeries, it could be dairy farms, basically any food sectors that you can think of in the food industry are all basically subject to the new FDA regulations. How are you gonna take over the world? The 99% that I talked about earlier actually supplies some of the largest retailers in the world, giving us a direct foothold into those very retailers who can then mandate caddy upstream. And so that's just the beginning. We're landing with traceability today, but have bigger plans to expand and grow categories tomorrow. So going back to our original question, guys, do you need cows to make milk? Thoughts on that? I mean, to get it started, you do. But after that, it sounds like we don't need them anymore. Steph? I mean, I'm a big fan of almond milk and all the other alternatives out there. But for what we think of as that original milk, I'm curious to learn more. And I just have to say, I've had their ice cream and it is really good. And it is very close to the real thing. So I'm very intrigued to see what comes next. Barbecue might be my favorite food. <laughs> see you next time. Thank you.